This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, my partner Mallory Peacock is joining us. Uh, we've been getting emails and Facebook messages from people saying how much they like episodes with trial tips. One thing that Mallory and I have really been working on in our trials is storytelling. What is the story of the case? How do we tell it? Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Uh, so we wanted to talk about this, and hopefully it's going to be useful to you. Thank you guys so much for writing in on the topic and continue reaching out to us. I hope today's episode helps you with your next trial. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I'm here with my partner, Mallory Peacock, for one of our table talks. And today we're going to talk about storytelling in trial and specifically on identifying the villain in your case. How are you doing today, Mallory? I'm good. I'm happy to be back on Trial Lawyer Nation. I'm glad to have you back. It's going to be fun. So let's talk about storytelling. Why do we want to tell a story in a trial instead of just presenting our facts? You know, the, the main reason is that people learn through stories. People don't learn through cold clinical facts. And if you want a juror to remember something, they have to relate to it. And the only way they can relate to it is through a story, I think. I totally agree. I think we're genetically programmed to think in story. Uh, I think, you know, start off around the campfire in the cave, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, and they're telling the story of the mammoth hunt that day or something. Uh, And I just think going through, I mean, little kids love stories and they can tell when they're not right uh, even at the age of three or four if you mess up a story they, they they know they know how a story is supposed to end they know who the good guy and the bad guy are uh, I just think it's really important uh, that that's how people think I think on a very basic level though um, I think it's important to what is a story I mean it's not something made up for a trial right I mean it's it's something that's very specific and it's still fact-based but what would you say, if you were to describe a story in just two sentences, what is it? A sequence of events with the beginning, middle, and end with characters and motivation, who have motivations for doing things. I think that's, a, I think that's I exactly mean, right. <laughs> I, I think that's a great description. I think the characters are in the most important part of the, the story. That's how it turns from cold clinical facts to a story. Yeah, and I think the real danger in not having a story is that the jurors are going to come up with a story. Uh, you hope it's a story of, you know, let's say we do a lot of trucking cases, the greedy trucking company that wanted to make more money, and so they endanger the public by pushing the drivers to drive more hours than a lot by law. Uh, that's a good story for us. Uh, if it's just like a regular car wreck, you know, the, the driver that didn't care and the defense team that you know was willing to spread lies about a good person in order to try to avoid paying money or something like that. Mm-hmm. The danger is if we don't have a story, the jurors are going to come up with their own. And the story may be the story of the greedy plaintiff's lawyer who took some case and tried to make it into more than it really was to make money. 
and of course they're going to be the hero of that story and they're going to be heroes by stopping you from doing that by giving you no money uh, so I think if you don't have a story you know they are going to come up with their own story and you might not like it do you think that every story needs to have a you mentioned heroes a hero yes it's always the same hero it's a group of heroes and I didn't come up with this uh, I don't know that he came up with it totally by himself but he's who I learned from it uh learned it from a guy named Carl Bettinger wrote a book called I think it's 12 Heroes One Voice and it uh, is kind of where I got into this story and, and hero and villain and what he says is the jury has to be the hero and I think they transformed the way I tried cases because I was thinking that I had to be the hero or my client had to be the hero and I was thinking no the only people that can do anything heroic in a courtroom are the jurors because they're the ones that can save the day they're the ones that can have a verdict that's going to change the world one way or another and they may be saving the world from the greedy plaintiff's lawyers or the people that are exaggerating or trying to cheat or they're trying to make the world a better and safer place by heroically giving a big verdict that's going to help somebody that's going to discourage future wrong etc so i think that uh, you know that's where i learned about the hero but the hero should always be the jury and what about the villain. I guess there's a villain in every story too. There's a villain in every story, and you know, if you're the, it depends. Of course, if you're the defendant, the villain's going to be the plaintiff or the plaintiff's lawyer, uh, or maybe the, the greedy doctor is trying to make money by giving fake diagnoses or something. But if you're a trial lawyer like us, I mean, the villain typically, if you have a corporate defendant, is going to be, you know, I used to say the company, make it about the company, and we'll get into why later. I think now you need to find like who are the high level decision makers at the company are actually better vision, villains than a, than a non-human entity because I don't know that entities make good villains I think people make better villains but we'll, go, we'll get into that I think it's not always so obvious when you first look at a case who the villain actually is I mean I think it takes some time to sit down and identify what your story you know who your hero is but right. what your story is what are the facts that the jury is going to see that make them realize for themselves who the villain is without you saying this is the villain in the case oh yeah no we could never say this is the villain and i think you know i think what you need to do is before you start your discovery kind of game and storyboard out the case you can try to figure out who you think the villain's going to be but also keep an open mind because it may not be the person you think it is sometimes the person you think is the villain isn't that bad of a person you have to go you know above and beyond the other thing is you know some cases you know, the company, or especially when it's not a company, let's say you have a regular car wreck case, you know, the 80-year-old woman who rear-ended somebody at 10 miles an hour on the way home from church is not a good villain. And so who is the villain in that case? You know, you can't use the term insurance in trial, but you sure can create this shadowy, what I call the defense that's, hiring paid opinion witnesses to give false testimony about the person that's digging into their life, twisting things around, trying to, you know, evade justice in the case. And, you know, maybe the either the insurance company or the defense experts are kind of this amorphous defense. I know I like I say it needs to be a person, but not when the person the only person you can talk about is the nice old lady. And so I think, you know, you need to put some real thought into who is the right villain for your particular case. So when you're setting up um, your story for trial and you know who your hero is and maybe you already have your idea of who the villain is, but when you're first looking at the case, 
how do you arrange your story in a way so that the I guess the jury figures it out themselves? Well, I think the best way to do it is to have a story structure that jurors are already familiar with. Uh, and so Joseph Campbell, a long time ago, wrote something called The Hero's Journey, and he went back from ancient myth to the present uh, about how there's a common thread of you've got somebody leading an ordinary life, and they're pulled out of the ordinary life into a foreign world where they're guided by a mentor, but eventually have to go off to fight a villain and save the day and be a hero. Uh, Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is a farm boy dreaming of going to space someday, but just living an ordinary life he's not really happy with. You know, all of a sudden he's thrust into this world beyond that he knew nothing about with this rebellion and Obi-Wan Kenobi and his, his people are killed. He's put in this uncomfortable situation, but he's got Obi-Wan Kenobi who's guiding him, who's his mentor. But at the end, Obi-Wan's gone. He's got to face Darth Vader on his own. He's got to blow up the Death Star by himself. You know, and then he is the one that saves the day. Well, that's kind of the structure you want. So you want the jurors, they're in the ordinary worlds, they're being really against their will, brought into a courtroom and, you know, forced to sit here in this foreign legal environment. And then you hopefully will be that voice, that guide, the, the, the mentor, the person who's bringing them into this world. Hopefully you won't lie to them about who their sister is, like uh, or their father is, like Obi Wan Kenobi. Uh, Hopefully, <laughs> maybe that's a, that's one of the examples in Carl's book. Uh, but but basically, you know, you're leading them along. Uh, but at the end, you have to say, okay, I don't get to go in that jury room with you. You have to go in there and be the hero. You have to go in there and fight and make it right. Uh, and so it's really about them. But part of that's also revealing through the story, through the the way you elicit the evidence. And through the conduct of the other side, why the villain is on the other side, why there's someone they have to vanquish. Um, when you're first looking at your case and you're trying to decide, and I know it can change over the course of a case, but how do you decide what would make a good villain? I mean, you mentioned the 80-year-old woman on her way to church that rear-ended someone is not a good villain, but what, and maybe a company is, but what are the qualities or characteristics that you look for when you're looking for a villain? Yeah, actually, what I did is I went and, and researched uh, playwriting and movie and screenwriting books to look for what are the common characteristics of villains and what do they teach people when they're writing. Because, again, we've learned what villains are from watching movies, maybe from reading books, but I think most people movies, TV. Uh, and I found that there are five characteristics that I saw common you know, through the different authors, and, then, and they all rang true. Uh, so, to me, a villain is powerful. Ideally, now you don't always get this in every case, but powerful, intelligent, immoral, deceptive, and an individual and not like a collective or an entity. We'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. So you talked about learning about villains through movies or TV shows. You already talked about Darth Vader. Um, who is another example of a villain that might have 
all five of these qualities in a movie or TV show, just to give us an idea. Okay, well, I'm going to geek out again, but Harry Potter, uh, Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter, uh, he's very, very powerful, very smart, he's planning things out, absolutely immoral, you know, doesn't care if he kills somebody to get what he wants, doesn't care if he tortures somebody. Uh, he's absolutely deceptive. I mean, he's got every, you know, half the world convinced he's not even alive anymore. He tricks people into doing things for him. And he's an individual. It's not like, it's not the whole order of people uh, that are the bad guys. I mean, there are, there are individual bad people, but the top villain is Voldemort, and he is the true villain of the story. You know, it seems like the villains that you're giving me examples of all have a motive that benefits them alone and so there's a selfishness to a villain that I think is an important quality yeah I'm, maybe I need to add a sixth quality or maybe that goes in the immoral you know you're willing because you, immoral doesn't necessarily mean evil it just means I want to get what I want and I don't care if it what happens to you because let's be honest most of the villains in our cases are not actively wanting to harm people so let's say We've got, a, again, uh, an oil company. They're, they're drilling in the oil field. They don't want to have an explosion. They don't want people to be burned up. But you know what? Sometimes they know that they're taking a risk. They say, oh, it's probably not going to happen. Let's go make that money. Let's go get that oil out. Uh, it's immoral. That is immoral. That is selfish because you are putting other human beings at risk of being burned alive because you want to make more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think that's kind of the difference between, like, you know, we think of the Darth Vader, the Voldemort, the actual, you know, evil for the sake of being evil. You know, we don't get that so much as they're willing to sacrifice others or put others at risk to help themselves because of the selfishness or what I would call immorality, mm-hmm. that they just don't care enough about other human beings to do the right thing because they want what they want. And I, well, and as a side note for lawyers that are listening which is probably most people you know not caring about something is one of the requirements at least in texas for gross negligence yeah conscious indifference yeah that you know something is bad and you just don't care and you do it anyways um and it's you know you don't have to show that they actively wanted to kill someone or they actively wanted to hurt someone it's it they decided that money was worth the risk or that what usually it's money. I mean, I can't really think of another situation where it's not money, but something was worth taking such a terrible risk. And, you know, that, and that most people wouldn't make that decision. Yep. And so one thing, you know, it's important here is it because we're looking at the power of the villain too, you know, we need to go, you know, as high up the corporate chain. We want to look to see if there's a, a bigger company and not just because we're looking for the deep pocket, but someone with enough power to make a difference and also frankly enough power to threaten the jurors I mean where they feel threatened by this villain mm-hmm. you know so that's one of the reasons why it's easier to try a case against a big trucking company because you usually find something there that they're doing wrong that's endangering the public and someone higher up that knows about it as opposed to the the mom and pop company where you can still find a villain but they're not as convincing a villain because they're not powerful they're not particularly as intelligent about it. They're not as good at being deceptive. Yeah. And then, you know, the last category I think is an interesting one because we've talked a little bit about making the villain the defense or the villain is the company. But you actually have on your list that it's an individual and not a collective. So why why is that? Well, you know, just when you look at it, what movie 
that's very good. I'm sure there's some, but it's usually not satisfying if you try to have some amorphous entity as a villain. You need to have a person as a villain. And, and I'll give you another geeky example. In Star Trek, you know, the next generation, they had an entity, you know, these things called the Borg. They'd have like these robot things that would go get other people or aliens and like assimilate them when they were part robot and part person and they all were one collective and acted together and didn't have any individual will and they didn't make very good villains and so when they made a movie about it they added a board queen they added a person that could actually be the villain in the movie and controlling all these people because just having this amorphous collective didn't make a good villain that's why you know when they you know political parties they don't just say you know the Democrats are evil, they'll pick out, you know, Nancy Pelosi, or the Republicans are evil, they'll pick out Donald Trump. I mean, they, they pick out the individuals and not, they'll say the other side, but they need to have a face to it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, just saying, well, this company didn't care. Well, how do companies care? They don't have any emotion. Aren't they people? Well, that's what Mr. <laughs> See how that worked in the presidential election? No. Corporations are not people. I don't care uh, what the uh, Supreme Court said or what Mr. Robinson said. Uh, and so, you know, if you can find the person who made the decision that, in, that knowingly endangered the public, I think it's so much more powerful, especially if you can get up to the point where that person is a powerful, intelligent person and then deceptive who tries to weasel the way out of it. Or, you know, one thing they loved in one case, you know, I had this big explosion case a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I was deposing their uh, vice president, one of the vice presidents of the company. And, you know, they didn't have a safety department. It's a crazy. It was an oil company with no safety department. And she was trying really hard not to answer my questions. And I would, was luckily mature enough to stay calm and just methodically just, well, ma'am, that wasn't my question. What I was asking you was this. And I asked, I asked it four or five, six times before I'd finally get some kind of an answer that was re responsive to my question. And we showed it to a focus group. They're like, man, they didn't want to answer the. I mean, they were totally that's being defective, look, they don't want to answer these questions, they're trying to hide it, they're trying, you know, and the fact that we exposed that, and then, you know, at the end exposed that this was a company that was pressuring the people to get things done, that knew there were dangerous things and just pressed on ahead. But not that, just that, but the vice president knew about it and was being evasive and deceptive about it and trying to reword the question or answer something other than the question to get out of answering it. Uh, it I think it really helped in, in creating a villain in that case. And that's before we had I think thought this through as well, mm -hmm. but we, we knew generally like go as high up the ladder as mm -hmm. you can and try to find a bad guy. And you know I think it does really work when you find those individuals. So once you find a villain, <clears throat> what, and if the juror is the hero and you have a villain, what role do you as the attorney play or the plaintiff play then it just seems like they're sort of other characters or yeah, so the, the plaintiff is kind of the you know like Fay ray the woman that king kong went and what about empire state building with you know the plaintiff is the the victim actually the survivor is what i like to say the one that's struggling through what the villain's done to them but kind of needs rescuing by the jury so that's the I guess the damsel in distress would be the old term to use. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a little sexist nowadays, I guess. But, you know, the person who needs rescuing, I don't know what the right term for that is. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the word victim because uh, right. we represent survivors, not victims. That's a whole other topic for another topic. show. But, uh, 
and then the, of course the jurors are here and we're the guides we're the ones that are the bringers of truth that are introducing and, and bringing people to this world and then empowering them to go out and fight for us and like fight the for Yoda them. yeah like the Yoda the Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi the Gandalf the you know and yes Carl those are all from your book <laughs> uh and so I think you gave a really good example of how an attorney can be the guide in the story. Um, when you talked about deposing someone that is trying to be deceptive, is trying to rephrase your question and staying calm and being the voice of reason and being the one that's just there to get the truth, that you're not frustrated, you're not upset, you're just, I'm just here to so that the jury can hear the whole story and that's all that and, it is. And the other reason you're not getting mad is because you trust the jurors enough to see it, to be smart enough to figure it out, to see what's happening, and to do the right thing. You get mad because you think you think that they're going to get away with it, jurors are going to get tricked by them. But if you have the attitude, I trust these people, these are good people, they're going to do the right thing, and I'm just going to be bringing them the truth, it's actually much easier than trying to convince people. It sounds easy to just trust 12 <laughs> jurors in, in a box, but it actually, I think, takes a lot of self-work on yourself to be able to get there. I mean, I don't think you just walk in and be able to do that it's taken automatically. It's taking a, a lot, a lot of work to get there. Uh, a lot of work with consultants, some psychotherapy, uh, a lot of things to learn to just trust 12 people. But what choice do we have? At the end of the day, we have to trust them. And when you go with an attitude of, I trust you, I respect you, I believe you're going to do the right thing, as opposed to having a suspicion inside. When you, when you are suspicious or distrustful of the jurors, it is going to show subconsciously in your body language, in your tone of voice, in something, and you're going to have a disconnect. You're not going to be able to get that. You've seen it when we have a connection with a jury, or with the 12 jurors. You don't have a jury again, you have 12 people. Mm-hmm. But when you connect with those people there, it's a different trial than when you're speaking at them. Uh, and to do that, you have to trust them. Oh, Joe Freed and Michael Leeserman, a great uh, debt on that. They really taught me to just uh, trust strangers. You know, it also, I think, it makes your trial a lot less stressful, at least on the attorney, because you feel like I have built something that's ready for the jury to see, and they're going to see it, and I trust them to see it in the way that I'm going to present it. And it kind of gives you, it lets you, kind of takes it out of your hands a little bit it and does. puts it in someone else's hands. And I think it makes at least you less a lot less stress during a it trial. Does. No, it doesn't mean there's any less work to get ready. You don't just right. believe they're going to do the right thing. Right. You, have to, <laughs> you have to discover the story, think about it, structure it, and then share it with them and be that guide. So how, and this might be a too, too ambiguous of a question, but how do you structure a story for a trial where the jur- jury can figure out by, by themselves who is the villain here? Because you can't say it. Because the, I mean, then you're telling them what to think. You're not trusting right. them anymore. So what do we? What do you need to set up for them so that they can come to this conclusion alone? Well, I think if you set, if you think of what are the characteristics of the jury of the villain, I'm sorry, and we'll get rid of the individual because that's a given. You know, someone that's powerful, intelligent, and moral and deceptive. And really, I think you focus on the immoral and deceptive, and don't just accuse some of that, but expose it show the jury why your villain is being you know whatever the witness is whether they're in the corporate route but show the jury why a particular human being is making decisions selfless decisions without regard to what happens to other people that they're being deceptive uh, 
and I think that's how you do it. But so you just think about it. what is the evidence I can I can present that's going to lead someone to this conclusion. Maybe focus group it, make sure people do come to that conclusion, and then weave that into your story. And sometimes it's it's a surprise. I mean, you and I tried a case about a year and four months ago, and you know the it was a bus case, and the bus company wasn't that big of a company. Relatively nice, at least the people that were there at trial were relatively nice people. And so, you know, the defendant itself did not make a great villain. But luckily, they did something villainous. They hired what they called expert witnesses, what I call paid opinion witnesses, to come and tell the jury things that weren't true to try to escape paying money. Uh, and we were able to catch the one of the defense medical people saying that certain things were not in the medical records and then you and I showed that they were and then you know, they wanted to say a term didn't mean what it, what he said it, you know the term didn't mean what we wanted to say it meant and luckily we were prepared for that and we had already proven up the medical dictionary as a learned treatise and made him read from the medical dictionary made him read from another book on how you get a particular type of fracture that he had in his office that was the exact opposite of his conclusion and we were able, I think, by the end, and then he tried to change the story and tried to come up with a new theory on the stand, and we were able to, you know, have anticipated and have the, the proof that he wasn't telling the truth there, again, through the, the books that he had in his own library that we were able to prove up through our expert. But, uh, and we were able to show that that particular person was intelligent. Guy had a P, uh, PhD or an MD, uh, powerful. He was president of a company that made 10 to 15 million dollars a year presenting expert witness testimony immoral because he was willing to say things that weren't true to make money without consequence and he was going to leave this poor elderly woman with no recovery whatsoever you know obviously he cares more about making his money than he does about what effect it has in the community and deceptive we were able to show that he was saying things that weren't true to try to win so i think in that case we exposed that defense expert as a villain, actually in my closing made him one of our villains, saying as long as people like him are alive, nobody is safe because a company can go and hurt anybody and they will come up with some crazy story about why this incident didn't cause this injury. And so no, no one is safe from injury. Uh, but also it showed if the trucking, you know, the bus company executives, if their lawyers were such nice people, why would they pay some to lie? And why would they continue to endorse it? Why would they not apologize to the jury for that false testimony rather than trying to go spin it and say, well, it wasn't really false. So, you know, so I think, I think that's an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, I think we need to clarify a little bit that the villain in that case was not, he was a villain, but he was not the villain that the jury was there to, you know, take money from to give to compensate our client, right? I mean, he, it was the defense, right? Yeah, it had to be was, a bigger... It, it, he was the individual uh, mm -hmm. that was part of the... And I, I just got to say, you know, you've got to show that you can't get away with hiring people like this because if you hire people like this and, and uh, you know, give an injustice based on a lie that then nobody's safe and how do you make everyone safe and basically how do you make yourself safe? Mm -hmm. We'll give a fair verdict and take care of this woman and then people say, hey, well, I can't get away with this, and I'm going to have to just not break people's legs mm -hmm. because I can't go pay somebody, you know, $20,000 to lie for me and get out of it. Mm -hmm. So if you're using the example of a company and you're looking for a villain, um, you're on the hunt for your, your perfect villain. I mean, you know at the very beginning of the case that there's going to be someone in the, before you have any discovery, there's going to be someone in the trucking company, there's going to be someone in the defense, there's going to be someone in the oil company, 
depending on what your case is, that needs to be your individual villain, how do you how do you go on the hunt for them? Well, I start uh, with a thought exercise. Uh, they call it a root cause analysis. Some people call it the five whys. So you keep asking, why did something happen? And so you know, you and I worked up a case, and so you know, you did a great job with finding this stuff. You know, there was a rear end collision. Why did the defendant driver rear end our client's vehicle when he was stopped on the highway? Well, because he was following too close and he didn't have time to stop. Okay. Why was he following too close? Did he want to hurt somebody? No, of course no. not. No, because he didn't know what the proper following distance was. Okay, well, why didn't he know what the proper following distance was? Because a company gave him a vehicle without training him or making sure he knew what the proper following distance was. Well, why didn't the company train him? Well, it turned out the company had a great training materials, but they never told their managers to give the training to their employees, and so they had this great stuff in the library that the employees never saw. Well, why didn't they ever tell their managers to train them? Why wouldn't they make sure the manager was providing training? Because they didn't care. All they cared about was making money. They didn't care about whether their employees got trained or not. So the manager supervisor, you know, was someone, you know, the VP was given, was known, okay, we paid someone to create the safety training program for us, and now we can say we have safety training, but I don't want to spend any corporate resources actually training the employees because I want to keep the profits up. I want to keep them on the road. I don't want to take time where I have to pay people to sit through, through a training class. And so that that's how we identified the villain in that case. And why didn't we stop with, I mean, I guess you could stop the five whys with saying, why did he rear end someone? Well, he didn't know the proper following distance. Well, that's not five. It's not five. <laughs> but <laughs> because, one, because that's not villainous. That's a mistake, mm-hmm. you know, and Honestly, you look out the window from our office and look at the freeway, most of the drivers out there don't seem to know how to do proper following distance because they're tailgating each other right and left. Uh, but it's not, not knowing something is ignorance. It doesn't make you intelligent. It doesn't make you immoral. It doesn't make you deceptive. It means you messed up. And so what we need to do is to go up to find the people that know better, the people that, okay, we had a training. I looked at it. I reviewed it. I know it's there. I know this is a danger. I know people get in wrecks. But I'm not going to bother. And, you know, had we not settled that case, what we were trying to do is then find other wrecks that had happened before in a similar way to show that they know they have a problem with the drivers and they still choose to do nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and ultimately, and I said this before, that's what gets you to gross negligence. It's what gets you to conscious disregard. It's not making a mistake is not gross negligence. Yeah. But when you know something is dangerous and you choose not to do something about it, there you go. And, and in, that's how you get there with the five whys, I think. And in most states, to have the corporation liable for the gross negligence, it's not enough that a low-level person does it. But in Texas, it's got to be, you know, a vice principal, somebody that's uh, in management, that's head of a division, that's in charge of some non-delegable safety duty. So you've got you've to gotta get up this chain through the five whys to the management-level people, or you're not going to get punitive damages. You're not going to get gross negligence. And Gross negligence in most states is important, not just for punitives, but there's a lot of states that follow this one uh, McAfee, I think, rule that they started in Missouri and it's kind of spread where if the defendant company admits that their their employee was in the course and scope, that sometimes you can't get any acts of corporate negligence like failure to train, like failure to supervise. You can't get in all that really good evidence that shows that they're a villain. And... But if you have gross negligence in most states other than Colorado, you can get all that in. 
And it's so important to get it that even if you don't think you can get punitives, because jurors don't believe that pain, suffering, anguish, impairment are compensatory damages. In the mind of most jurors, no matter what the jury instructions say, medical bills and lost wages are to compensate. And they will not give, they will not follow the law and include in their award pain, suffering, anguish, impairment, disfigurement, those kind of things, unless they think the defendant deserves to pay them. And that's why you sometimes see little teeny tiny awards on bad injuries because they don't think the defendant deserved to pay it so they won't get it. And sometimes you have huge awards and not such a big injury because because they saw the defendant deserved to pay it, they actually followed the evidence and, and gave adequate compensation. I think that that's an important point um, in structuring your story for trial. The story has to be about the who your villain is and what they did and not about your client or what they did, um, I think. Otherwise, it, it, the, the story structure gets off and yeah. that happens. Well, you definitely have to get to the harm, your client's harms and losses, but you definitely need to start uh, with the story of what the defendant did wrong and telling in such a way the jury comes to their own conclusion because we can't always prove why they did it. But you can come to a conclusion, you can tell a story that it makes people lead to the natural conclusion, like they were trying to make more money, or they were in a hurry, or whatever whatever it is, whatever the motivation is. Uh, and But you have to do that before you get to your client's story. If not, one, they might, you know, you start just talking about your client in the beginning, they're going to, that's what they're talking about, that's what they're going to be thinking about, they're going to think, well, how did he cause the crash? The other thing, if you, you know, even if you have a client that's catastrophically injured, if you started talking, well, I have a client and now he's in a wheelchair or, or she lost her husband, the jurors are going to think that, you know, you're trying to pull out their heartstrings to get their sympathy to get money you don't deserve, and they're going to they're resist you on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're going to put up a wall. If you tell the story of what someone did wrong, but tell it in a way where you don't say it was wrong, you just say what they did and tell it in such a way that the, defense, that the jurors conclude it was wrong and it's reprehensible on their own, then they're ready to hear what happened. I, and I think that's true, too. Jurors like to be little detectives, right? Yeah. They like to have figured it out for themselves, and they like they like the mystery behind it. They expect trial lawyers to put on a show. And it doesn't have to be a show with videos. It doesn't have to be flashy, but it has to be something where they have something that keeps them engaged and keeps them active. And a story with a villain keeps them engaged and active. And so if you tell the story in a way where by the time you're talking about your client's damages – they already know what happened. They're like, oh, well, obviously this was going to happen. Yeah. This We're just waiting for this to happen. And especially if you can get in uh, evidence of other similar incidents where before you even talk about your story, this has happened before and they didn't do anything about it. It happened before. And, you know, if you have, you know, I, I was, and then we didn't get to try the case because it settled, but I was working on focus groups on a really, really tough product liability case. I mean, actually, it was an automotive defect case and the car was actually the front half of one car and the back half of the car welded together but the seat was the seat and the seat failed, but it was a tough case. Uh, and if I just told the story of that case, if I told the story of, you know, I had a passenger in a car driven by a drunk driver and it was two cars welded together because they'd each been in a bad crash and the drunk driver hit a tree and my guy got paralyzed, it's like, no one's gonna blame the automaker for that. But when I showed that the automator knew that these seats were weak and then when they did the crash test and we showed the crash test and the seats are going right back. And then on this date, this person has stopped and they get rear-ended and the seat goes back and they get paralyzed. And on this date, a person is stopped 
and they get rear-ended and the seat goes back and the dad hits his son and brain injures his son and puts him in a wheelchair the rest of his life and told five or six of those stories. Then when we get to our story, it's, it's an expected outcome. And so who cares about the specific facts of our case? This is a bad product that's hurting lots of people. And so, you know, when you can get that, then by the time you get to you, well, of course this is awful. we got to do something about this. And then they're ready to hear about the harms and losses of your client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you still can't leave them out. They're not, you know, one, you well, need support for the verdict if right. you've got appeal. But two, you know, there's still the so what. I mean, you know, we I see drivers doing crazy things all the time. I had an 18-wheeler. I mean, it's bad traffic, and he is on my rear I can't go. I mean, I'm keeping, you know, a four-second falling distance is what I do, and it was driving them nuts because uh, if I'm going to criticize other people for it, I'm going to do it, plus I want to be in a wreck. So I'm keeping, I'm going like 40 miles an hour. I got my falling distance. He's behind me like six inches from a bumper. He's flashing his brights at me. He's honking. And I finally, you know, there's cars to my right. I finally get to where I can move over, and then he just goes right to the car in front of me and then starts doing that to him. You know, and they're like, this is 630 traffic in San Antonio. There's not, you're not going to get very far. There's lots and lots of cars, and I was going the speed of traffic. Yeah. Now, he, what he did was horrible. It was reprehensible. It was dangerous. It was selfish, but it didn't hurt anybody. Right. Sooner or later, he's going to hurt somebody, but so that's not a good case. You still have to have the harm. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that you try to show someone's a villain in case? Uh, so, one of the ways that we've tried to switch focus of who is obviously the villain but it's an individual person that doesn't have all of the characteristics that you would think a villain has so the example is 18 wheeler driver is texting and driving and plows into someone right the obvious villain when you're looking at the storyboards is the 18 wheeler driver right yeah. the problem with the 18 wheeler driver is he doesn't have power he's not depending on which 18-wheeler driver it is, maybe doesn't, isn't particularly intelligent, isn't deceptive, admits that he was on his cell phone, right? It just says, yeah, I was texting and driving. It was, my bad. I mean, I'm so sorry. I can't believe this happened. This is so terrible. I take full responsibility for this. That's not a good villain. And $100,000, $200,000 will put that guy in bankruptcy. It right. take much to ruin his life. Right. And so finding the villain in that situation where you think, oh, I got the 18-wheeler driver, he's texting on his phone, this is going to be a great villain, and then you go and depose him and you say, ooh, he's real nice, the jury's going to like him, yeah. $100,000 is a lot of money to him, our person's really hurt, $100,000 isn't going to do much for our person. And so you start looking up the chain, and this is where the five whys really come in. And so you say, okay, but why was he texting and driving? I mean, why was he doing it? And turns out, someone from the company was trying to send him a message about where he was supposed to go. So someone from the company is the one that's sending him messages about what you're supposed to be doing. On, on, and so that why would the company do something where they know he's driving and they know you're, it's actually against the rules to, against the law for an 18-wheeler driver to be using his cell phone while driving an 18-wheeler, knows he's driving. So why would the company do that? And the answer is they didn't want him to pull over because it wastes time, wastes fuel, wastes time. Yeah, they get paid by the mile. They get paid by the mile, not by the hour. And so ultimately, the, you could find the villain within the company, but it wasn't it wasn't what you thought when you first look at it. And so that's sort of a, you know, one way to do it. I think that's why it's so important that, you know, if you have a case of significance, I, we wish we could do it in every case. I'm trying to get my practice where we ha can, but at least on the cases of significance, your biggest cases, 
to do the mental exercise before you take any depositions. And but half the time you're going to get it right. Your your guess is going to be right because there's only so many people are people, and there are only so many motivations for why people do things. Uh, so you you know you so you brainstorm it. You come up with your, what you think your story is going to be, and then you know try to do your written discovery to get that stuff. Try to listen to that in the depositions. But then after your first round of depositions, sit back again. Does this story still ring true? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't. Then you have to think, well, what story does ring true, and how do I make it? How do I find the villain in this story? And then, you know, as you get close to trial, do a focus group, test it. The people, when they hear this facts, hear the same story that you want them to hear. Mm-hmm. Is the story ringing true with other people in the community? And then keep testing it, testing it, and tweaking it. And you know, sometimes how you present things, the order you present things, makes a huge difference in, in the story. And you have to just keep tweaking and tweaking and, and working on it. And Sometimes it's formal focus groups. Sometimes, I mean, honestly, I tell stories to my wife, and she's brutally, brutally honest uh, to the point where I've been like, "Oh, you're gonna lose that trial? Why are you going?" Uh, but she's about 95% accurate in in trial results. Uh, I've learned to listen a lot more over the years. <laughs> I'm sure, wife uh, appreciates that. <laughs> yeah, at least about trial results. Uh, sometimes she says you're gonna lose, and I have no choice because you know the offer is not an offer that we could take, and right. you know, we just go down there and do our best. But the, uh, so yeah, I think that's the, it's so important though to start early, but then not to get locked into what you think it's going to be and try to create a false narrative because that's also dangerous, but to continue to, to take the time. And, and, and we do that. We you know we schedule uninterrupted uh, full day or half days to just brainstorm on one case and it's got to be, you know, blocks of uninterrupted focused time on one case at a time. That's the only way. Mm-hmm that you can do this. And I think um, something that you can't be married to is what's worked in other cases before. So it is very important. I think focus groups are very, very important. And so you can focus group something and they think that the company not training someone how to drive, you know, this vehicle is horrific in this one case. I mean, they're just like, oh my God, I can't believe they didn't give any training, you know, and you have all the facts that lead up to it and then you... You think, oh, you know, training is where it's at. This is where this is this is how I'm going to get the villain in every single case. And then you go into a focus group, and you start talking about training, and you don't you don't have it, and the focus group laughs at you. Yeah, that sucked. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you can't be married to that theory, right? It, okay, it worked in that case. It doesn't mean that it works in every single case. You have to find the story of each individual case. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's hard, and that's why not everyone does it, and it's a lot of work. But when you do it right, it is so rewarding because it really, you're connecting with the jury, you're feeling it, they understand it, they get it, and then usually they, they, you like the result at the end of the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the one last thing I want to add is, you know, that you, know, you, you work on it, you tell the story, you give your opening in a way that allows the jurors to come to their own conclusion that the defendant is a villain that your client needs to be taken care of, uh, and then you present the evidence is at trial in such a way that it leads them that, oh, yeah, you are telling the truth. This, they can really see that this person is villainous and that your client is worthy of being saved and that they're trying to do everything they can on their own, but they need the jurors to help. And at the end, you just have to hand it over to them and ask them, you know, I find this, ask them to be heroes. Ask them to do something heroic. I know it's not easy to give a big verdict. I know you're worried that people are going to criticize you, but I need you to go in there, and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be the right thing so that, you know, you can be proud, you know, when someone asks you, 20 years from now, why did you give $40 million in that case? And 
they can say, well, it's because you know the defendant did something so bad and the person was so hurt. I mean, whatever the obviously better words than that, but because the trucking company is endangering people, they hurt this man and they just didn't care, and he was so hurt that that was the right amount of money. I mean, they can come up with you got to come up with something for them to say, but that they can feel like okay, it's hard, but we did it. I think the other thing, if you want a heroic case. Think long and hard before you exclude all the other side's experts, even if you can. Uh, because a villain has to be powerful. If you go and you daubered out all their experts, you go in there and you have this great animation, this great videos, all your experts, and they have like a lawyer and their clients in there, and they don't put up much of a fight. Um, <laughs> they have one little legal pad and they lose their pin halfway through the trial. <laughs> yeah, who's David, who's Goliath? I mean, it's not a powerful villain. And even if you're in the right and they're in the wrong, you're picking on them. Uh, so we've had cases where we thought we could dobert somebody out and we don't because one, they need to fight back. And two, sometimes that's the only way we can show that they're deceptive is in the way they treat our client, the way they try to twist things out of context for the medical records or past statements to make our client look bad when they're not really bad, accusing them of lying when they're not lying, and then the best one is when people come and lie for money, these you know, so-called expert witnesses. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important to have the fight. I think also it helps show why our client is not the villain. Like what has our, our client's not the one that didn't settle because they're being greedy, right? Our client's the one that didn't settle because they've been calling him a liar forever and they've been, you know, doubting their injuries and they've been saying this this wreck didn't happen the way they said it happened. I mean, yeah. it's, it makes us look more like the reasonable ones. Right, you don't want to feel like we pulled the jurors out of their normal eyes for the $40 a day or whatever they get uh, in order for, to get us money. But we pulled them out of the, their normal lives and put them in the strange legal world because something, someone has done something really wrong and they're trying to get away with it and they're gonna get away with it unless 12 ordinary people step up and become heroes. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're a regular listener, be sure to visit our website, www.triallawyernation.com to opt in to our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.